Welcome to the Holding History Podcast, a series of bookish conversations about the fascinating and sometimes puzzling ways that we record, share, and preserve cultural knowledge. In each episode, a brilliant guest expert helps us tell new stories about old and sometimes odd media. While every conversation is different, we return to one particular question. What makes a collection special? My co-host is Sarah Marty, co-director of the Bolt Center for Arts Administration at the University of Wisconsin School of Business. Sarah's favorite gift ever was a used set of Encyclopedia Britannica with black leather covers and gold embossed lettering. She still has them. My co-host is Joshua Calhoun, professor in the Department of English and the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies. Josh does not like glossy pages in books, and that's putting it mildly. Children's books and coffee table books get a pass. Maybe. So we owe a real debt to Dr. Suzanne Akbari, author and professor of medieval studies at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. She took a risk and agreed to be interviewed for a podcast that didn't exactly exist at the time. (laughs) Absolutely. We are so grateful she took that chance as our very first podcast interviewee. And we should say that we've learned a lot since we had this conversation, Um, not just about collections and archives, but also about recording and interviewing. And much of that we learned from Suzanne because in addition to her scholarly resume, she's also the host of The Spouter Inn, an award-winning podcast about reading good books. Yeah, you you know I fell in love with The Spouter Inn early in the pandemic, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, If you go to our episode guide on holdinghistory.org, you'll find links to her podcast. Uh, But I knew, and I had taught Suzanne scholarship even before that, for instance, her scholarly book on representations of, of uh, Islam and the Orient and medieval Europe is field-defining. And I remember you sent me that beautiful public-facing piece about can the essay still surprise yeah, us? Yeah. About reading and writing essays that connected Virginia Woolf and a new book mm-hmm. on native nonfiction to childhood reading habits and reflections on college writing assignments. <laughs> yeah, there's this fascination with books and, and this joy of reading that comes through in all of her work whether it's public-facing or special expertise work that she's doing in in the archives. I can't think of a better person to chat with about the individualized libraries that we make and remake in various personal spaces throughout our lives. Even though we talked to her at the tail end of 2020, yes, you heard that right, (laughs) right, 2020, the conversation feels timely and actually very comforting right now. It's been consistently below zero here in Wisconsin Mm -hmm. the past few weeks. It's definitely winter. So the experience of sitting with some friends and talking about books does feel right. Yeah. There's something else I noticed and felt a little warming about this episode, which is that Suzanne kept relying on these uh, lovely metaphors and, and similes as she talked about book collecting and book organizing. There were these libraries that, in her words, kept growing shaggier and shaggier, like an overgrown garden, for instance. But then in the pandemic, without access to those same libraries, uh, there were these little islands of limited numbers of books, some of these islands accessible and some inaccessible. The incredible thing about Suzanne is that she can be talking about her own little islands, her collections of books and her organizational idiosyncrasies or whatever, and then seamlessly transition to talking about these 1000 year old manuscript fragments. She just has this incredible range. Um, As a fellow curator of bookshelves, my uh, personal cabinet of curiosities, (laughs) there was a definite spark of recognition as she shared how she organizes books and meaningful items, and she ranges them thematically and emotionally, like how she placed a small yellow toy taxi cab next to her books about New York City. Yeah, she she has this quality that we value and we're seeking out for 
this holding history podcast that she can tie together the personal and the historical and move between these kind of lofty and abstract ideas about preservation and ephemerality and then link them to concrete examples like that tiny wooden taxi cab you mentioned. <laughs> okay, Sarah, I'm going to put you on the spot this time and ask what was your favorite part of this interview? That's always such a hard question. Um, I really enjoyed talking about the personal space of the bookshelf and how it changes when we move yeah. or you know, we get older, we change our interests. All these things are mm -hmm. reflected on the shelf. And it was fun to, to think about that. Um, listening now, my favorite thing, though, is hearing the echoes between this conversation and our previous episodes. We're starting yeah. to see similar questions that emerge around what we save, who we save it for, and how long it's going to last. I, I, just, I completely agree. Some of that we try to curate by scripting our questions, but really our guests are allowing us to weave this longer conversation that's actively challenging and changing the ways that I think about what makes an archival collection special. So let's get to it. Enjoy this conversation with Dr. Suzanne Akbari. We all have piles and piles of books in our homes and or offices, and we might call these personal libraries, but in this show, we've been exploring how collections are shared. So there's a, maybe a contradiction here. For you, what's special about the personal library and how can a personal library be shared? I think it's kind of unshareable in a way. You know, I think, I mean, at least this is my sense of it. Um, it's so private. It's so much yours. And it, I think, is almost impossible for somebody else to totally understand what it, what what the things mean in it, right? They might kind of grasp the overall structure of it and see what kinds of fields of interest you have, but they're not going to understand the underlying logic because it's an outgrowth of your own sense of yourself and your work and your interests, right? I tend to translate it almost right away into this idea of like private or personal spaces, being a young kid who would, you know, be sitting off in the corner reading a book, right? That sense of an interior world that you can retreat to. I think our private bookshelves or the pile of books that we have next to our bed or on our desk, right? Um, those sometimes represent that kind of private world, like this place we retreat into. And so one of the things I remember noticing when we were doing the Spouter in, the idea of the bookshelf or the pile of books was a really powerful way to both think about what we were doing and also to talk to guests sometimes about what they were reading. Yeah, there's a, a pulling between the material and the, and the metaphor. One way that clarifies is we were thinking about, you know, what is the difference between a personal library and a personal archive? Mm particularly books I use a lot, tend to accumulate things. They accumulate bookmarks. They accumulate pieces of paper. They include, they accumulate notes to myself. Um, if it's a book I wrote, it accumulates yeah, things. Yeah. Like if there's a review that I was like, that I wanted to keep and I, I'll print it out and put it in the book. Like they become this kind of memory palace. And so they're, the line between archive and library gets very, very blurry with those ones. Don't you love when you open a book and you find this, this thing that just transports you. Sometimes it's very weird. And sometimes it can even just be the annotations in a book. The The books tend to be these like doorways into other spaces in other times. People typically think of libraries as only being a collection of books. Mm. My per, my mm. library is behind me and it's so many more things than books. It's, it's almost like a, a little personal museum or curated collection. No, I totally get that. And actually it's something that 
I still get a huge amount of pleasure out of curating my bookshelves at home in the way you describe. So there'd be like, oh, I don't know, little images or, you know, boxes or, you know, objects. And they'd always be arranged in a way so they were speaking to the books that they were next to. So for example, even up in Toronto, there was a old child's wooden toy of a New York City cab that somebody had given to one of our kids way back when. And it always lived on the bookshelf in front of the books about New York City. You know, so things like yeah. this, like, so, and nobody would notice it unless they look closely, right? But you know they're there. You know the story of your own life is there. I love that so much. I'm actually looking at your shelves right now, trying to see what's on them. Though, ironically, this is actually a really good sort of like hybrid manifestation of how the how this phenomenon works. So these are my this is my partner's bookshelves. So they're the books that I've accumulated in here and tucked in the corners and <laughs> squeezed them in here and there. So. And then there's also stuff, right? There's a pile of shells from this summer up at Cape Cod that I have surreptitiously um, put up on the shelf because they made sense to have around when we were recording our episode on Eden Robinson's Monkey Beach, right? Because it's talking all about the water, right? So you can see it happening <laughs> in a very messy way. Colonization <laughs> of somebody else's shelves. It's like this like parasitic kind of invasion. Well, it raises the question, do, does, does your partner feel that their personal space is being invaded. No doubt. I have no doubt. There's a lot of book creep happening. And but he's pretty patient, so he hasn't complained, at least not yet. He better not hear this. He'll probably complain if he hears it. So why do you care about personal libraries? I can't tell the story of my own life to myself without thinking about my shelves and my books, you know? So whether it's thinking about when we moved into the house, we moved into when I was seven, like I remember vividly, my parents put a bookshelf in my room and I'd had like some small quantity of books, but you know, I was seven and I was, mm-hmm. you know, becoming more of a reader as you do right around that age. Right. Yeah. And so I had this like white, like this old bookshelf, my mother painted it white and put like contact paper on the shelves. And I remember taking this huge amount of pleasure in arranging my books. I was like, like, there was like a very complex logic to my books. Right? And so, I mean, as I got older, that kind of continued, but like the practice of the way the books were was like a huge part of like who I was. The The library changes over time, but your relationship to it never changes. Um, what's the, the most significant or compelling experience you remember having in a personal library? So, um, so the office space was for me in some ways kind of the primary private library space, but the other space that was also really powerful in a similar kind of way is the um, library of the Pontifical Institute up at Toronto. And the person who was at that time, the librarian there, um, John McGee, uh, who's a faculty member at Toronto, is also an old friend. I knew him back at Columbia when I was in grad school when he was an assistant professor. Um, He took me around there and I just, we were just walking around the shelves. It's a non-circulating library that's all just for medieval studies. It's mostly editions, though a certain amount of secondary literature. There's one room that is just paleography books. Like it's, it's, you know, for those who like that sort of thing, this is the sort of thing that they like, right? I mean, it's really intoxicating if you're into that stuff. And so I just was walking with, with him in there and I was like, God, John, it's like a candy shop. It's like a candy shop. So it was like, a, it was like my office, but in a sense, right? Because it was also a projection of what was inside my head. I've just been reading um, uh, Edward Wilson Lee's Catalog of Shipwrecked Books. He says it's possible to own a large number of books without there becoming a library. The library only comes into being when the books are put in relation to one another and to books and things not in the library. And I like that, it made me wonder, what sort of attempts have you made to organize your library and catalog it, if you've made any? 
So I described earlier the ways in which really from a young age, like this, the, the way the books were organized on my bookshelf, like that white bookshelf when I was seven, like the, the, how that logic sort of developed over time. So I can remember even now the organizational structure of the bookshelf I had, you know, when I lived in an apartment in college. I can remember the organizational structure of the shelves when um, I had my first sort of kind of quasi grown up apartment in, in New York after college and moving into grad school and then my first office and so on. Like I remember logic and they were really well-developed and well-defined. Like there was a real crisp logic to it. And I remember going through these years up in Toronto where like, say I wrote an article, you know, the books that were relevant to that article, uh, I would, when I finished the article, I, I just sort of cram a copy of it on the shelf over there. Cause it was, it sort of grew organically, right? And then as time went by and the field changed. So I was working on, for example, for a long period of time, representations of um, Jews and Muslims in the middle ages and, and you know, Orientalism and things like that. So at one point that shelf was relatively small, but then a lot of books came out, right? Including my own, right? And so I had to disperse them and they had to move to different kinds of places. And as time has gone by, um, the libraries become shaggier and shaggier and more and more overgrown, like an overgrown garden. So when I moved down um, to New Jersey in the summer of 19, uh, 2019, mm -hmm. um, I did move my books into my new office and yeah. I packed it and I'm like, okay, I really deliberately said, okay, I'm going to put the history books over here and the literature books over here and here's history of science. But it was kind of artificial and I was kind of like putting them into sort of conceptual boxes. And what's happened since the um, pandemic and this need to kind of work in this really ad hoc way, like I don't have an office at home, right? So I kind of, you know, inhabit whatever space is free that my partner's not using or my son or my daughter when she's home from law school and um but I have these little like that little colonized space on the shelf behind me that I was describing or the um there's a little tiny little narrow bookshelf that's in my bedroom now that only holds maybe oh maybe three and a half feet worth of books right it's four shelves and a narrow bookshelf um but those are the ones that are kind of current so it's like little islands Right? I've gone from having a kind of memory palace room to lots of little islands with, you know, um, you know, shells and seaweed on them. <laughs> and it, it's different. It's very different from what I've known in the past. Some of the expertise that you bring to this conversation is uh, your range of, of, of knowledge of how other people have organized their books and thought about libraries and collections. I guess my question is, to think broadly on those, how, how has the personal library changed over time or space? That's a really big question. And I think it'd be very hard to find one person could, who could answer it in the kind of really synoptic way, right? I mean, I guess, I guess the main thing that I've learned a lot more about over the last few years is the distinction and the overlap of library and archive. That is the ways in which when we think about the history of the pre-modern book, we're often reliant on places where um, books and sometimes fragments of books got heaped up and almost forgotten about. So things like the caves at Dunhuang, where they give us, give us incredibly important evidence about book production up around the year 1000 in Central Asia, um, you know, collections like um, in the mosque at Damascus, where you have this kind of collection of books and also manuscript fragments, a little bit like the Geniza um, um, in Egypt, right? So we have these like archives that are kind of shading over between library and archive in interesting kinds of ways. Um, so, so that's something I know something about. But like I said, I feel like it's not something I feel comfortable talking about authoritatively because my own grounding is where it is, right? 
as you think about the times and spaces, how people collect ideas and, 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 and publish them in some way, are there any that stand out to you? Like maybe when you first encountered them, they weren't recognizable to you as something you would think of as a, a library or a collection or a personal collection, and, and that now you understand them as, as the basis for how somebody organizes knowledge. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, that is a really provocative question. You know, library, you know, a library is the space that the books inhabit, right? It's the place of the books, right? And that might involve the sort of connective tissue, you know, the meaningfulness that of how the books relate to one another and how the books relate to and are conceived of by the person who puts them together, right? But, um, but if we think about if we draw it out into that sort of more metaphorical sense, like you were mentioning anthologies just now, you know, how can I put it? The library can be something that's very benign and personal and sort of growing out from an individual sensibility, but it can also be kind of prescriptive, like this is your library, this is your canon, this is your anthology, this is your reading list, right? Like, so there, there's a kind of a very, very, I think very positive and free and even emancipatory sense of the personal library. But then there's also that sense of, you know, what you are given, mm-hmm. like how far you can go. Um, and, yeah. you know, I, I keep coming back to childhood experience. Maybe this is age, right? It, it, that, you know, the way it works when you go to the library when you're a little kid, right? It's on the one hand, this place of incredible freedom. Like there's like amazing things that you find on the shelves. It's like intoxicating, right? Like you're a child, so you don't know what it is to be intoxicated, but it's exactly the same feeling basically, right? You will find, right? Um, But you're also limited, like the librarian will say to you, no, you can only take three books, or are you really gonna read all of those? Or about that shelf, you should, that section is for you, not this section, right? So there's there's prohibitions and like forbidden doorways in this Eden of the library, right? So so it's complicated, uh, even just thinking about physical library spaces, even more so when you start thinking about the metaphorical spaces of the anthology, of the reading list, of the canon, uh, and so on. I'm still thinking back to your examples of these big, old, musty archives in history. And I'm also thinking about my own little library. Is it at all accessible? Could anyone but me or you make any meaning from it? And what story would it tell? You know, if we sort of pull out the idea of the personal library a little bit further, there is one way that people make intelligible and make accessible the the private libraries they construct for themselves. And I was thinking about this a little bit getting ready for today. Um, Miscellanies, you know, um, it, it could be something like the commonplace book that some of us might even still make today. Or it could be something like, you know, the more elaborate manuscript miscellanies you find throughout the Middle Ages, where um, sometimes in a very sort of haphazard way, you know, whatever's at hand, but other times in a very curated and very thoughtful and interesting and like maze-like way, um, uh, compilers would make collections. So they're uh, like, so one of the ones that I know pretty well is um, from the early 12th century. It's called the Liber Floridus by a person called Lambert of Saint-Omer. He was a canon um, in Flanders in the Low Countries. And he makes this really, really intricate and complex manuscript compilation, which survives in its autographed manuscript. But it was also really highly thought of. So there's actually a number of copies of the Libra Florida. So it's a it's a miscellany, but then it got copied because people thought it was so neat. And we have, like I said, the autographed manuscript, but we also have very detailed codicological studies of it. And so this idea of, you know, a personal, highly personal selection of texts that you put together and adorn with images and diagrams and genealogies in Lambert's case, um, where there's this intricate logic and you as a reader have to really think about it to put it together. It's like puzzle solving almost. Isn't it interesting that, that now in the digital age and we 
with many of our collections, think about, should we digitize this, should we catalog it, or should we use it? There are many apps you could use to catalog your library. There's also this desire to have uh, a way of expressing oneself that cannot be archived and cannot be collected. You know, if you have any thoughts on that. I find it kind of scary. You know, like I understand the impulse and you can see how it grows naturally out of other kinds of social media environments. Again, think about Instagram, right? Your story versus, you know, your feed and stuff like that. You know, there, there are these different kinds of functionality that people desire, right? So they desire to be able to have the highly curated um, uh, material that will, will live on. And then they desire to have things that will expire after a couple of days. And what Twitter's doing is probably, you know, not totally different from that. Um, and yeah, like that's what there's, a, that's reflecting it's answering people's desires, right? It's accommodating a preference. But I think, you know, we're so cavalier about what, how much is gonna be lost in the digital environment we're in. You know, how much is gonna be ephemeral? How much will be gone, you know? I mean, you know, the paradox is if you work on medieval manuscripts, sometimes you're really aware of like how, how um, difficult it is to regain to, to capture some knowledge of the pre-modern past and you know how much has been lost you know for every manuscript book we have how many were lost how many were fragmented and thrown away and parchment scraped and reused and ultimately like you know uh you know became garbage but um but they're also tough right it's not a coincidence that when people talk about how to make digital media that will have a really long life one of the phrases they use to talk about it is digital vellum Right, so so we're in a time of tremendous ephemerality, and I, I worry about it a little bit sometimes, to be honest. When working in archives, I've relied on handwritten journals, typed letters, sketches, and photographs to construct an understanding of an individual and the place, metaphorical and physical, where they lived. In the digital age, what is the future of the personal library, and what does biographical research look like? It is something I think about. I mean the direction I've been thinking about it from has to do with the commentary project I mentioned, practices of commentary. In that project, I've been really interested in thinking about what commentary means to us now. In other words, understanding it in historical terms and historicized terms, and we're all doing that together. But thinking about like, what does that look like now? Because we come, we swim in a sea of commentary. We're doing it all the time. Um, you know, so social media contacts, right? you think about Twitter, you think about Facebook, you think about Instagram, how, do, how does commentary function work there? How, what's the role of the image in commenting, right? The GIF, right? Any of these things, right? And just think about like, so we understand commentary so intuitively and it, we're so comfortable with it and it's, also got this very rich history. So how do we negotiate these two worlds? And that's a sideways way of coming at an answer to your question, because on the one hand, we're talking about a practice, a way of doing things. And that's something that we can study both in the pre-modern past and also observe in our present. But they're also highly idiosyncratic ways of engaging with text, right? They're private and personal. And, you know, if we think about certain, certain online spaces, even more so like, I don't know, Tumblr, I think, inhabited this kind of very personal and affective space for a while. Um, you know, it's, it's logistically much more difficult to sort of recuperate an archive, I think. That's going to be much more challenging. You know, how do you gather a person's letters in the way that used to be possible, right? Um, so much of this stuff is going to be ephemeral. Um, but um, the very fact that we're thinking about this now and trying to understand how to do it, I think maybe will open up some doors. And there are people who are really interested in curating their spaces. You look at people's, I notice a lot of people's Instagrams, um, but it's also in other spaces as well. Some, some people's websites are thoughtful and creative and like, you know, 
really have a kind of personal inventory happening in them. That includes, in some cases, libraries of different kinds. So I think we're in a very different kind of environment, but the fact that we're asking the questions, I think, is really hopeful. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Suzanne Akbari, Professor of Medieval Studies at Princeton's Institute for Advanced Study. For links, a transcript, and special features for this episode, visit the Holding History podcast page at holdinghistory.org. Holding History is a mentoring-driven public humanities program, and part of the work we do involves featuring student curators who are learning how to use new media to talk about old things. Each episode ends with the bookish word, where our HH student curators tell the story of a weird word from the history of books and media. This week's word is etymology. And friends, warning, this one's rated PG-13. <laughs> hey, Frankie. Fancy meeting you on Zoom. Hey, Ariel. That pandemic life, right? So I have a question for you. What do the words crap, golf, marmalade, pumpernickel, and f**k have in common? Frankie, you can't say f**k on a podcast. <laughs> Why not? Because it's a f**king bad word. Okay. Anyway, back to what these words have in common. I have no idea. What? They're all examples of etymology. How do you spell that? E-T-Y-M-Y-T-H-O-L-O-G-Y. Other terms for this are false etymology and popular etymology. It's basically a false history of a word. Okay. So it's just the words etymology and mythology combined. An example is how people thought the word crap derived from Thomas Crapper, an English businessman who manufactured toilets. In actuality, that's a load of crap. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Crap's etymology actually comes from the Dutch croppen, which means cut off or separate, and the old French crepe, which means waste or rejected matter. The first use of the word crap as referring to bodily waste or defecation arose in 1846, a mere 10 years after Crapper was born. So, Crap's etymology couldn't have been associated with Thomas Crapper as a 10-year-old. <laughs> okay, I'm officially intrigued. So now that Crap has been exposed, what was that four-letter word's etymology? Well, throughout English history, the F word was thought to have stood for several acronyms, those being one, fornication under consent of king, two, for unlawful carnal knowledge in the nude, and three, forbidden use of carnal knowledge. While our beloved F word has a somewhat unclear etymology, it possibly derives from Swedish, Dutch, and Germanic root words meaning strike or fist. If anything, etymology proves that a compelling narrative is more easily disseminated than the truth. It's human nature to prefer a good story over a boring history. Etymology is the perfect bookish word because, like a good book, it blurs the lines between fiction and fact. That's the end of this chapter. I'm Joshua Calhoun. And I'm Sarah Marty. Our theme music is by Luke Levitt, and our associate producer is Tom Van Camp, who built his own bookshelves by hand. The Bookish Word was conceived, created, and recorded by Francesca Bua and Ariel Ramos. Support for this podcast was provided by a University of Wisconsin-Madison Baldwin Seed Grant and Friends of UW-Madison Libraries. Learn more about Holding History at holdinghistory.org. Thank you.